tonight being the half moon day. It's an occasion where we dedicate our efforts to the practice of meditation a little bit further into the night than usual. This is a tradition that has uh, continued on since the time of the Buddha and in more recent times under our teacher Ajahn Chah the one prat, the full moon or new moon or half moon nights those days, those nights are dedicated to Dhamma practice And in Thailand, in especially northeast Thailand, it's an occasion where laity come into the monastery to practice with the Sangha for a day and a night, keeping precepts, listening to Dhamma and meditating. Sometimes they call it one bun and merit day. Because this uh, understanding of practice as being making merit, or making wholesome karma, is deeply rooted in the culture. Of course, that's a shorthand for. Perhaps the fuller version is abandoning unwholesome dhammas and developing wholesome dhammas, purifying the mind, the awada patimoka. Based on an understanding of karma and a conviction in the truth of karma, that we are all owners of our karma, heirs to our karma, born of our karma, related to our karma, abide supported by our karma. Whatever karma I shall do for good or for ill, of it for ill, of that I'll be the heir. So this sense of coming to the practice, developing the wholesome, that which is meritorious, good karma, abandoning the unwholesome, purifying our mind. It's the starting point of practice, it's samaditi, wisdom. And to really practice successfully we have to have wisdom guiding our practice. All the other qualities unnecessary but wisdom is like the mother and father of the practice guiding, watching over our practice and the beginning of wisdom is this understanding of karma
they often talk about the practice in uh, Thailand, the Krubrajan say that we practice meditation and one, the, the practitioner whose karma has come to completion, their merit is full, their karma is full or complete, is ripe for enlightenment. But one whose merit or karma or parami isn't yet ripe or full, however much they practice, however much willpower and desire they have to reach enlightenment and the goal of their practice, it won't happen yet. Their merit, the karma is not yet ripe. And this is why we have to have patience in the practice. It's why that in the Awada Patimoka, the Buddha went on to say that patience is the supreme destroyer of defilements. Mean, meaning we have to be willing to keep at it and accept humbly accept where we are in our practice, in our spiritual path. Where we use wisdom here, we reflect on our situation right now. Say the Dhamma as it is right now. And the qualities of the Dhamma are apparent here and now, encouraging investigation. To be known individually by the wise. So with wisdom we look at the Dhamma of our situation where we're at right now. Our body and our mind, our life right now. And we have to accept that we've come to this point through our karma. We come to the practice with our karma, good and bad. And much of the practice is about working through our karma, developing the wholesome and abandoning the unwholesome. And there's no way around this. We can't wish or will our past karma to just disappear. But we can learn from it and understand it and where conditions are such that they bring up suffering for us in the course of the practice. Well, this is something to be understood and comprehended and known as suffering as dukkha not to be run away from, not to be avoided, but to be known for what it is. Sometimes even in the practice, we seem to be creating dukkha out of the practice. But when we bring in wisdom to contemplate, that can be still be a valuable thing, the dukkha for the ending of dukkha, or the suffering for the ending of suffering. fear of dukkha and dislike of dukkha is probably one of the biggest obstacles in the practice, certainly in the beginning. We all like things to go the way we want. We want to be comfortable. 
the modern word is we have our comfort zone we have our preferences and we like to control things and make things go the way we want that's part of our karmic conditioning and we bring that into the practice into the monastery and this can be a great source of dukkha in itself when we come into the monastery you start to go against the flow of our previous karmic conditioning and the way of the world the monastery and the monastic training the Vinaya and the Dhamma that we practice here doesn't flow anymore in the same direction as our previously held desires and attachments doesn't always fit or match what we want and so we often we have a certain fear or nervousness around that or dislike of that and one of the ways to help us to deal with the, the basic unwillingness to practice to put ourselves to the practice and to investigate Dhamma, investigate the Dukkha perhaps and one way that we can help that can help us get more conviction, more confidence up to be a bit braver and a bit bolder is to always recollect teachers Sangha and teachers that have inspired us and are inspiring us it's even a kind of meditation Sankhanu Sati the recollection of Sangha, the qualities of the Sangha, those who practice well, practice with insight and with integrity. And often in practical terms this means the recollection of teachers that we've known personally or heard about, read about. Bringing them up to mind, thinking of how they practiced, what they went through thinking of how they are actually no different from us. They have a body and mind like us. They also like to be comfortable and happy like us. They also dislike dukkha, but they're willing to look at dukkha, understand it and overcome it, transcend it through the practice. They've done that and they've done that well there's probably no better teacher to look at say than Tanajan Man with his teacher Tanajan Sao the modern founders of the forest tradition and uh, reading Lumpurian's biography he just talks a bit about Ajahn Man as his teacher. Just picked out four qualities that particularly inspired him about Ajahn Man. He said that Ajahn Man um, in the first place is a monk who was far from sensuality. 
and in particular that means say attachment to females as a male, as a monastic, as a samana there is no hint of attachment to females in his life, in his mind no sense of um, particular attachment to a particular female in any kind of unwholesome way so he was a great example of celibacy and appropriate behavior for a samana one dedicated to nibbana to free himself from lust and sensuality he was exemplary in this this is one quality that his students could look up to him immediately and have that sense of confidence this is someone that no hint of attachment or intoxication with sensuality or the female form. The second quality he talked about was the sense of harmlessness. Absolutely no sense that there could be any harmful intention to either kill or aggressively harm another being in the mind of Dhanajamman. Is it absolute confidence that there was no no sense of harm or aggression in his mind and thereby it was a mind that was completely full of metta, completely full of goodwill, tolerance, acceptance of other creatures with no other beings without any intention to harm. third quality he talked about was the purity in the way he had obtained and used requisites achiwa parisuti purity of livelihood in that he was a monk who was very very scrupulous in the way he uh, received his requisites obtained requisites they say he would never consume anything, say food or drink in particular, that hadn't been properly offered in the proper way and, and clearly offered to him for use. And he was very scrupulous in the way he took up, say, invitations from lay, laity for the four requisites, whether to use or not or accord, appropriately according to the situation. Under whatever the circumstances, even in circumstances where he was in uh, difficulty or hardship, there's never any sense of him compromising this purity of his livelihood, requesting things or taking things that weren't offered or whatever because he was in a situation where he was somehow stuck or in hardship. There's never any question of that, and he certainly went through much hardship, physical hardship. The last quality that Lumpurian talked about was the way that he never misused or boasted about or deceived anyone about his own attainments or understanding or attainments in Dhamma. Uttari Manusa Dhamma never tried to 
pull people to him, attract people to be his followers or gain a reputation. They say talking about his special abilities or trying to impress people or boast or even deceive them. Again, no hint of that. His teachings and anything he discussed with laity was always turned to them to get them to develop their own special qualities through their own efforts in the practice. This was his skill as a teacher, getting people to bring up their own effort, develop their own mindfulness, their own wisdom in the practice. And no sense of trying to hold on to people or cling to them or get you know more and more disciples for himself as it were it's just a genuine compassionate wise approach to get people to practice for themselves so they could see Dhamma for themselves these were four notable qualities which you could say make Lumpur Man a very extraordinary Kalyana Mitta a noble friend for all those who knew him and even for us we can remember him through the talks of of his disciples and the books and so on even his great compassion during his uh, sort of middle years when he actually became the teacher of his own teacher, Lumpo Sao. Lumpo Sao was still, although a very skilled meditator, great mastery of the uh, of Apana Samadhi, but not yet an Arya Pugla, not yet enlightened. And after Lumpo Man himself became enlightened before Lumpo Sao, he actually was skilled enough and found the appropriate time and place to be able to teach his own teacher, Lumpur Sao, to reach enlightenment. It's one particular pantsa around his 20th range when they spent time together and Lumpur Man, towards the end of pantsa, taught him, taught his teacher. All through that pantsa, even though Lumpur Man had at least 20 reigns. He did all the duties of an attendant monk on his teacher, Lumpur Sao, washing his bowl and robes, looking after him. No sense of uh, pride or conceit. He was already sort of senior and shouldn't be doing these menial duties. He was happy to do them and did them out of respect and gratitude to his teacher. And out of gratitude, he finally taught his own teacher, Magapala, Nibbana. And his life is full of many inspiring incidents and uh, things we can recollect in this way. This isn't to, again, to lift up the inspiration of his life to the point where it becomes a cause for us to feel depressed or low that we can't match it or we feel so such a beginning point in our practice. 
how will we ever be at his level? But simply as a a wise reflection on how a human being can practice and how a bhikkhu can practice. Bhikkhus can practice to the point where they're free from anger, free from lust, free from pride and conceit, stubbornness and so on. It's possible just to give us that inspiration that 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 potential lies within all of us and to give us the courage, the boldness just to have a go, following his footsteps. Another great obstacle in the beginning of practice is the just the basic sense of selfishness that we've built up in particularly in the lay life. One of the karmas that we have to accept that we come into the practice with generally our cultural background, our society teaches us a lot of selfishness and or doesn't teach us to give up selfishness so well. So our culture encourages us to accumulate things. The perhaps one of the defining qualities of a lay of the lay life is it's a life of accumulation, mainly accumulation of wealth. And with accumulation of wealth and the accumulation of experiences, which we tend to equate with happiness, sensual experiences, say traveling and different kinds of pastimes and experiences we can have once we've accumulated wealth and the freedom that wealth brings us. So we all have that when we come into the monastery. We tend to have a habit of accumulating things, wanting things, wanting to get things, accumulate things. And obviously on a material level we have to drop a lot of that. There's not too much we can accumulate in this life, although we still can. So we have to observe that with, uh, like Lumpur Man, reflecting on the purity of our requisites and the use of requisites. But also this sense of accumulating and wanting and seeking things can also transform into accumulating knowledge and experience to do with Dhamma practice. So we often seek out different teachers, different places to practice, books on Dhamma, information and knowledge about the Dhamma. Often seeking a sense of security or building up a sense of self around that because we have less material things to do it with. So as lay people, we tend to build up a self-identity about who we are, like our possessions, our job, where we live, how we spend our time. But all very superficial, very fleeting and temporary. When we come to Dhamma practice, then that may be moves on to this knowledge and experience we've gained, what we've heard, where we've been, what we've done. And then also on to like what we might have attained. So we, often we're seeking attainment 
because we tend to identify that in the same old way that we are used to accumulating material wealth. Now we want to accumulate attainments, experiences in meditation, special knowledge and so on. Again, the sense of self starts to form around that, images of self. So if we start meditating, we haven't yet attained much or don't feel we've attained much, then we start to feel that we haven't got much personal value or our sense of identity isn't very uh, high or don't seem so to be worth so much. And so we can easily become disheartened, discouraged. Or it may be that our sort of more selfish tendencies from the lay life to come into that because we have this habit of wanting to seek and accumulate, get things, get, get experiences, get knowledge in the Dhamma, that we don't want to give up anything else to anybody. We just want to pursue our personal practice and it actually seems right. It seems the view we have seems correct that we should be pursuing our meditation. And so we can still be quite selfish even in the monastery, even in the monastic life. So perhaps not so interested in the people around us or the way the monastery works or how it functions and how to support that, how to serve Sangha because our tendency towards accumulation or selfish tendency is, is still quite strong. That's another common sort of feature of early practice. But we also have to reflect that the Buddha said that there's no deep states of samadhi and then no deep states of insight arising from samadhi where there's still macharya, or stinginess, self, self, that kind of selfishness in the mind. And this is why the Buddhist path is founded on dana and service. This is why... So for laity, Sangadana is such a powerful tool to support their practice in learning to share their wealth with uh, particularly the Sangha and then also out in society with the poor and the sick and the needy. To directly counter the tendency towards Macharya and towards want to just accumulate and value the sense of self-worth with how much we've accumulated. Because of course, if we're still following those more selfish tendencies and possessive of our wealth, of our time, of our knowledge and so on, well, it means we're still identifying very strongly with these candors and the ability to give up and let go is not yet very well developed. So although even, say, we might spend a lot of time studying or practicing Dhamma, if the underlying intention in mind and the underlying state of mind is one still rooted in a strong sense of self and desiring the accumulation of, say, particular experiences in Dhamma, attainments of samadhi, of insight, special powers, special knowledges and so on. 
then we tend to actually be shooting ourselves in the foot all the time and the practice doesn't go in the way we want we are people either get end up giving up or else they actually go maybe overestimate in their search for attainments and that actually overestimate their practice and start attributing to themselves attainments that they haven't yet experienced. So we find in the monastic training then just like for laity then it's, it begins with dana, learning first of all how to give up how to give up to the sangha, give up to the training, the routine, give up to service, give up to helping each other out when we're sick, when we're in need and so on. If we look at the Vinaya, then a lot of the Vinaya rules, the training rules for monastics, bring up the sense of selfless behavior where we can't just uh, go off and do exactly what we want all the time. But at the same time, we can see we get plenty of seclusion in our life. Already the monastery, the forest, is secluded from the world, from the laity, from the city, from much of the activity of the world. We're already secluded. And then even within our daily routines, we have plenty of free time for ourselves but not so much that we're completely cut off. We still have plenty of duties and responsibilities to perform, which is eroding away this uh, more selfish or possessive or accumulative side of us. And often in the beginning we don't like that. We don't like to give up because we're used to not giving up. We're used to getting what we want and seeking what we want. So these two things, the sort of fear, fear of practice, um, fear of what it might involve, fear of dukkha and so on, and then just basic selfish attachment, wanting things the way we can get them, being more selfish, more possessive, and so on. These two things seem to come up over and over again for practitioners in the beginning and we really have to look at them quite deeply to see where they could be blocking us or causing obstacles for us as we practice. Not just reflecting on Sankha, Sankhanu Sati to help us bring up some of the qualities that we need to do this but also just bringing wisdom in to reflect on the practice on, on what's going on in our mind from day to day as we practice meditation. Obviously we know the techniques, we've learned the techniques, we've practiced many, many times, but we also need to use wisdom to see what's arising in the mind. Wisdom based on mindfulness, where we actually start investigating, examining what's going on. What are the underlying intentions and moods, states of mind that are coming up 
what are the underlying views that we have, the attitudes we have behind our meditation and behind the way we do things. And that's something we can be doing at all times, not just during a meditation. So we're observing our attitudes towards other people, attitudes towards the monastery, towards the routine of the monastery, towards different parts of our daily life. As we start to do this, as we start to investigate, then we're bringing in the reflection on karma very directly as we bring up mindfulness, start to look at our states of mind to see what they're rooted in, whether they're wholesome or unwholesome. We start to recognize what is what is there. Is it um, wholesome, unwholesome, wholesome, rooted in non-greed, non-anger, non-delusion, unwholesome, rooted in greed, anger, delusion and all their offshoots. And this is something we have to train in, train in wise reflection, looking at our mind to see what is coming up at any time of day from beginning through to the end of our day. Often we're practicing in a very compulsive way or habitual way where we tend to go through various routines and habits that we built up. Uh, those that are good, well, that's good, that's supportive, but many of our habits are not yet so skillful. We get caught into habits of thinking that we brought into the practice with us, in habits of negative thinking, habits of always seeking something different from what we've got, seeking distraction to get away from what we've got, and so on, many, many different kinds of habits that we've got. So we have to get used to coming back to looking at what's coming up in the mind over and over again. If our particular character tends towards negativity, then see how that comes out in the way you look at things and your attitudes. So as you begin a meditation session, what, what is your attitude as you begin? Is it going towards the negative already? You're thinking, I don't feel good today, or my mind is not peaceful today, this is not going to go well. I don't physically don't feel well today and how we can easily find something negative to think about at the beginning of a meditation and then that might affect the whole hour that we sit or if there's some part of the routine that we have to do some chore that we have to do do we do that chore with a negative aspect and a negative mood in our mind we have to start looking at this and countering it, catching the way the mind follows its habits. Sometimes it comes out in our speech. Say somebody might ask us to do something 
if we have a habit of negativity straight away we'll say mm, we can't do this because of some reason we can just find the reason why we can't do that task or chore that we've been given sometimes we just think it sometimes we actually say it can't be done and maybe even the reason the excuse sounds quite genuine but underlying it is actually just a habit of negativity seeing the negative in that thing maybe equating having to do a chore with somehow losing out somehow not getting what we want or losing time or losing losing out in some way so straight away it's seen as a negative thing when somebody gives us a chore or getting up in the morning if we get up in the morning early and it feels cold or we just feel a little bit tired at first then the negative thinker will tend to focus on that and straight away say oh it's too cold or I feel too tired I'm not ready yet and that might be a, the cue just to turn over and sleep but then when you practice you know, how often if you catch the negativity bring up mindfulness and push through it maybe get up anyway you might find that the coldness doesn't matter after a while anyway or the feeling of tired tiredness stiffness or whatever fades away anyway or if somebody gives you the chore that you don't want to do and you just quietly let go of the negative thought and go on and do it and then the negative thought disappears all by itself anyway and it's done how often in our practice is it like this or we begin meditating and we have some negativity but we push through it or if we're practicing sitting or walking get to a point where we don't want to do it anymore but we push through and get to the point where that negative thought fades away and we can actually observe them negative thoughts are not self they're not me they're not mine they're just conditions of mine that come up and go away this is how we practice how we practice following in the footsteps of these teachers overcoming our own negative karmic habits habits of body, speech and mind that can come up at any time of any day and this is the Dhamma practice often we do it to ourselves don't we we practice with ideals we have goals in the mind we have ideals and then maybe that's a cause for negativity to arise or we look up to the ideal and then we look back at ourselves and feel oh, I can't do it I'm not good enough so we have to be able to step back at that point catch that thought well, this is just a, another negative thought arise and pass away and not keep following it not keep indulging in it
sometimes we actually have to bring up the can-do attitude. So if we are facing negativity, how can we bring up sense of can-do? I can, yes, I can meditate. I can carry on meditating. Yes, I can get up in the morning. Yes, I can do this chore. And just work with that. Whatever way you can... Use your mind in that way to actually overcome a negative train of thought or a negative attitude. What will bring that up? Often it's just basic mindfulness, remembering to do that. Sometimes it's thinking of others, thinking of the others that are more the, the inspiring teachers. Sometimes thinking of the laity if we, as we practice putting effort into our practices, the way that the, the laity make more good karma by supporting us. As monastics, we depend on the arms of other people all the time. Our food, our accommodation, all the requisites we use. And the way the merit is made by those lay people or it's increased is by our efforts in the practice. And the more effort we put in, then the more good karma is generated by the, those lay people. So as monastics we make merit by receiving the alms of others and reflecting on them, using them wisely to support us in the practice of Dhamma. Sometimes this is, in, is difficult to do in the, in the beginning. This can be a cause of negativity. Don't like to receive from others. We like to be independent. So as lay people we often like to be independent, have our own source of income and our own wealth, not to be dependent on others, not to take from others. We have to remember as monastics we're not exploiting others. If the requisites, requisites we use are given out of faith, freely given, we didn't ask for them, we didn't seek them, they're freely given. And we're not exploiting others. And we're actually giving others a chance to make merit, to develop the good karma of giving and supporting Sangha. The more we turn that into a wise reflection, then that can be a source of inspiration to get up in the morning to do the do meditation, to do the chores, to study harder, learn the Dhamma, do all the d duties and follow all the parts of the routine that we follow here. In the end, it's a bit like a 
tractor or the ute here when it's the battery's flat and we have to start it by pushing it until the engine starts turning over and gradually it kicks in and then it carries on by itself. And the Dhamma practice is a bit like this. In the beginning we have obstacles. We have our old karma to work through. We have negative thoughts come up. We have moments of no inspiration, depression. We have problems. We have difficulties. We have ill health. We have negative mind states and so on. But if we keep bringing up the effort reflecting on the good karma that we're developing and then little by little it's like the car starting it starts to become a, a good habit of mind a healthy habit of mind that becomes stronger sooner or later it reaches a point where it becomes established in the mind that the more wholesome outlook, the more wholesome attitudes become established, then there's no more doubt, there's no more uncertainty about the practice. Like the car that's, or the tractor that's now started and can go off on its own without any more help. Once we have some continuous states of wholesome states of mind, that's when samadhi practice becomes easier. It's when some of the benefits start to arise. We start to feel more joy from the practice, more happiness, more contentment. Less doubts, less uncertainties, so less distraction in the mind, less worry about the future, what's going to happen, where am I going to go, and so on. The mind is more content in the present moment. This is the benefit of any kind of good karma. It gives us contentment in the present moment, happiness in the present moment, and benefit in the future. But we're the ones who have to make this karma arise. We're the ones who have to develop the good karma and un abandon the unwholesome karma. If we keep doing it over and over again, then the good habits get established. The wholesome states of mind become experienced. And we know for ourselves, oh, this, this works, this brings happiness, this brings joy. then one can go on to deal with even greater kinds of dukkha. Once one has a store, a, a foundation of wholesome karma, just as those teachers that we read about, hear about, or know, how do they deal with illness? or How do they deal with the difficulties that they went through? because they had built up a, a continuous store of wholesome dhammas that they could draw on at those times. And they've practiced and developed patient, patience, they've practiced and developed the kindness 
develop the renunciation, experience the contentment and the joy of the practice. These are the results we can experience in this very lifetime. It's from this that we want to gain the chance to practice more. We want to continue the practice, become enthusiastic for the practice. It becomes interesting, not boring. Even dukkha can become interesting when the mind has got a stream of wholesome dhammas. You can investigate dukkha at a much deeper level, the dukkha of a human body that the unsatisfactory side of this body and the dukkha of life as whole the dukkha of this world once the mind is in a wholesome state and it can look at it and it's even quite enjoyable to look at dukkha and understand dukkha for what it is and the mind doesn't want to get stuck on it anymore it just wants to leave it behind leave dukkha and its cause all the craving and attachment just leave it behind because it's experiencing the happiness of wholesome dumbness. In the end, you can, when the mind is ready, it can see, see dukkha as just something to be discarded. Ajahn Chah's simile was the fish bone stuck in your mouth, or you're eating fish and you get the bones in the mouth you meet, you just take them out and throw them away you don't think of holding on to them or keeping them, it's just something to be discarded and you take the meat eat the meat once you become established in the practice then you just see dukkha arising in the mind or thoughts leading to dukkha you just see oh it's just dukkha and you want to just let it go throw it away it's not a big deal anymore some pain in the body or discomfort is not a big deal, just uh, something to be discarded like fish bones. That's all it is. So I'll leave these words with you for your contemplation tonight. <clears throat> 